with you and have fellowship with you. Uh, I do express our greetings from Leeds, Yorkshire, England. Uh, Many people ask me where Leeds is and I tell them that Leeds is the capital city of the Texas of England because when when we come to America and we meet Texans, uh, Texas is America and there are other little states sort of scattered around Texas. Well, if you look at a map of England, uh, you'll see Yorkshire, the largest county, and to many Yorkshiremen, uh, Yorkshire really is England, and you have a few other sort of states hanging around uh, the circumference. We have a wonderful subject uh, for today, uh, something which is exhilarating and which moves the soul, and I'm going to invite you to uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 for our reading of scripture. We'll read the paragraph uh, beginning at verse 11. I'm reading from the New International Version. Uh, All translations have their advantages and disadvantages, but this passage perfectly well expresses um, the subject, particularly as we come to the end of the paragraph. First uh, Timothy, chapter 6, and we begin to read at verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this commandment without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God the blessed and only ruler the King of kings and Lord of laws, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might for ever. Amen. And particularly do we examine the phrase, God the blessed, and to extend it a little further, God the blessed and only ruler. And this word blessed in the Greek is makarios. Some years ago uh, there was a bishop, a, a Greek bishop, and his name was Bishop Makarios. He was often an unhappy man and so denied 
the meaning of his name, for Makarios means happy. And I suppose if the translators of the NIV had been really daring, they could have translated the phrase as God the happy and the only potentate or the only ruler. Now, is God happy? And if God is happy, how is he happy? In what way is he the ever-blessed God? This description of our heavenly triune God is provided for us twice, both in the same letter, 1 Timothy 1.11, and here at 1 Timothy 6 and verse 15. Now, if our God, the God whom we worship, is the ever-blessed God, in what way is he happy? And how can he be happy if he doesn't have any feelings? Because traditionally, uh, the Reformed faith, uh, the faith of our fathers expressed in the great confessions, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and uh, the uh, equivalent in the 1689 Confession, these confessions teach that God has no bodily parts or passions. In other words, they are teaching that God has no feelings. It's interesting to observe in the 1689 Confession of Faith as it has been translated or transposed into modern English by S.M. Horton and published by Carey Publications in this book, uh, A Faith to Confess, that it is put this way. God is pure spirit, invisible and without body, parts or the changeable feelings of men. And that gives us the clue as to why our forefathers were nervous about describing God as one who has feelings. Because if he has feelings, then it is possible that he might be subject to change. But our God is not subject to anxiety to envy, discontent, depression, doubt, or bad temper like we are. We are subject to all these feelings, these emotions. And all of us fear too much pressure, because if we have too much pressure, then there is difficulty. We begin to crack. We begin to show the carnal side of our nature and we're afraid of that. We know what we like, we know that we have remaining sin and so uh, we fear too much pressure by which some of these feelings might be expressed. Our desire as converted people is to be saintly and in all our emotions and in all our conversation to reflect the glory of Christ. Now is it true that God has no feelings. Well, I profoundly disagree uh, with uh, the Reformed confessions and with the traditional view that God has no feelings. But if you want to know more about that, 
then we will look at it in the second session today, the second session which, we, which follows presently. In the meantime, before we get to that, uh, I want to explain to you the way in which God is the ever-blessed God. And he is happy, first of all, because of his being, because of his nature as the eternal, transcendent, unchanging God, because of his uniqueness, his oneness, he cannot be challenged by anything in himself or anything without himself that's outside of himself, because of his transcendent, holy being. God is exquisitely, gloriously happy. He is the ever joyful God of exquisite, perfect happiness. Secondly, God is happy or blessed because of his triunity. God is not alone. God is not a monad, a one. God is three in one. God is gloriously and perfectly happy in himself because he is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has fellowship, perfect, eternal fellowship in himself. He is happy because of his triunity. But there is a third reason why I propose to you that our God is the ever-blessed, the always happy God, the God of joy and love. And that is, is because of his creation. He is happy in what he has created. The creation expresses the glory of our God and he is happy in what he has created. He is not dependent upon that, but he is happy with what he has made. And then there is a fourth reason whereby our God is eternally and unchangeably and exquisitely and perfectly blessed and happy. And that is because of his people. Because of those whom he has redeemed in his Son. Those in whom he has delight and whom he loves with a complacent love. Because of his people, our God is happy. And these four points all support each other. There is a unity in the four points that I have brought to you. First, God is happy because of his transcendent and unique and holy being. He is happy in his attributes, in his essence, in what he is. Second, he is happy because of his triunity. He is three in one. He is happy in his creation, which expresses his omnipotence and his glorious power. And that wonderful creation of his is the scene of redemption. There takes place within his creation, within his glorious creation, within that habitat which he has created for man, within that habitat, within that creation, 
They are his redeemed people and he is happy because of them. Let us uh, proceed to open up these four points. First of all, God is happy because of what he is. You know, little children sometimes say, Mummy, who made God? And then we have to explain, or Mummy has to explain, uh, that God is not made. God is uncreated. God is the unchanging, the eternal, the perfect God. How do we explain who God is? Well, the confession of faith, in fact, is quite brilliant uh, because of the way in which it not only expresses the whole range of Christian truth. When I say the confession, I'm referring particularly to the Westminster Confession of the 1689, the way in which it expresses the whole range of truth. But it begins first of all with scripture by which we receive revelation and then chapter 2, God and the Holy Trinity. And this is what the confession says about God. There is but one and only one living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in his being and his perfections. None but he can comprehend or understand his essence. He is pure spirit, invisible and without bodily parts or the changeable feelings of men. He alone possesses immortality and dwells amid the light insufferably bright to mortal men. He never changes. He is great beyond All our conceptions, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty and infinite. He is most holy, wise, free and absolute. All that he does is the outworking of his changeless, righteous will and for his own glory. Now, these... Uh, sentences describe the uniqueness of the God we worship. He is transcendent in his being and holy and he possesses all these attributes and only he possesses them, the attributes of deity. He is all-powerful, all-seeing, he has all knowledge, he cannot be added to. But it is especially important to notice that he is holy. And when we say God is holy, uh, we mean by that, first of all, that he is a part. The very, very first meaning of holiness, whether it's expressed in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, the words convey uh, the meaning and the message of a partness. God is, first of all, a part. He is not dependent upon anything nor can he share his essence with anything that is created. He is absolutely and utterly apart. And with that apartness, there is also purity. There is no darkness in God. No sin can enter him. He cannot be tempted by it. It is impossible for God 
to have any compromise with iniquity or sin or wickedness of any kind or form. He is absolutely pure. So as he is apart, so also is he pure. Absolute purity. And then with that purity there is a third very, very important feature concerning the holiness of God and that is this holiness is a brightness. The word holy sometimes in the Old Testament reflects the idea, has the nuance or meaning of brightness. There is a glory in the holiness of God. He is glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, a God doing wonders. So when we conceive of the living God, we must always conceive of him as the one who is a part, who is unique, who is on his own, without any needing any addition, he is holy, he is pure, he is glorious. And in that way, he is happy. Because holiness means happiness. We come to an area here where people are seeking pleasure. Very first impression I received when, we, when I went out last night was the same kind of impression that we get wherever we travel in the world. Young people particularly going out there trying to find pleasure. It is a pleasure-seeking world. But there is no pleasure of any substance or endurance without God. Only in a holy God of purity can there be happiness. God is happy because he is holy. His holiness spells his happiness. Because he is perfectly holy, he is perfectly happy. It is not possible for him to be tainted with, to be spoiled by sin in any shape or form. He is impeccably holy and therefore he is perfectly happy. And that is the message which we need to be preaching. You know, happiness is found in holiness, not in the dregs, not in trying to squeeze out some kind of pleasure out of a world that uh, has rejected our God. It's impossible. And as Jeremiah uh, says, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13, my people have committed two sins. They've abandoned me the source of living water, and they have hewed out for themselves cisterns which cannot hold water. And that's what we observe all around. They are trying to hew out for themselves somehow or another, trying to squeeze out of a fallen world pleasure. It isn't there. And the more they try, the harder they go at it, until they are violent in their quest for happiness, which cannot be there because... Where there is no holiness, there can never be any happiness. But God is supremely and perfectly and exquisitely blessed and happy because he is holiness. And as Stephen Sharnock suggests, holiness is the characteristic, the chief characteristic of all his attributes. All the attributes of deity are characterised by the holiness of God. His wisdom is holy. His knowledge is holy. His purpose 
is holy. His power is a holy power. Everything in God is holy. That is why he is happy. And that's the very first reason why he is, and it's a beautiful way of putting it, the ever-blessed, the always-blessed, the always-happy God, because he is holy. And that holiness, remember, is transcendent. It is apart, it is above, it is supreme. The Lord is uniquely and perfectly holy and therefore happy in himself. Now let us proceed to point number two. God is happy. He is exquisitely blessed in himself because he is triune. I have been to Islamic countries, I've observed Muslim people, and they worship their God, Allah. Allah is a monad. Allah is all alone. And there is an amazing lack of love in Islam. They've had their war, Iran versus Iraq, with the destruction of multitudes of young men. Why is there this lack of love? Why is there so much cruelty, implacable cruelty, in that religion? Well, it is because of this monad. Because who can a monad love? Who does a one love? But with our God, there is triunity. The Father loves the Son. And he loves his son with a passion, a divine passion. This, he says, is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There is a love that is eternal between the father and his eternally begotten son. And then what about the Holy Spirit? Well, we read in 1 Corinthians 2, that the Holy Spirit searches all things. Yes, the very deep things of God. And the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and from the Son, he knows the Father and he knows the Son, and as much as he knows the Father and the Son, so much does he love the Father and the Son in the eternal relationship of love. When the scripture says God is love, we mean God is triune love. There is a love in the three persons of the Godhead, a supreme, perfect love. God intrinsically is love. Now, how this love is felt, again, is something which is beyond us. As I will be showing uh, we certainly love a God who has feelings, but how he expresses that, how he, how he um, enjoys that, is something perhaps we'll know more about in the next world. But we must understand that there is this unity, there is this love, there is this perfect harmony and relationship in the three persons of the Trinity. And here it is most important to observe the other person-centeredness. 
in each person of the Trinity. The Father is outgoing to love the Son. The Son is outgoing to love the Father. The Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father and the Holy Spirit expresses the love of the Father and of the Son. As it says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So we are experiencing the love of the Trinity by the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts. And that makes me wonder whether we of the Reformed tradition haven't perhaps failed in the area of emotion and in the area of feeling and love. We've tended, particularly Saxon Reformed people, tend to downplay the emotion. We're so afraid of expressing emotion that we become clinical, we become cerebral, we become cold, we become academic and, and hyper-intellectual. Now, of course, we must worship God with our minds. That's primary, that's first. I agree with Jonathan Edwards that the supreme worship of the next world will be to know the Father with our minds and to be able to appreciate his glory with our minds, but not at the expense of what we are made in his image. We are made in the image of the Trinity. And we are meant to be other person-centred. We are meant to be outgoing and to have emotion and affection and love. It's It's our very being, it's our makeup, and we are made to be like God in that way. But he is happy because of his triune being. The Father has someone to love. The Son has someone to love. And the Holy Spirit expresses this love. He is the Holy Spirit of love. And he knows what it is to be loved. And he loves the Father and the Son. Let us then take good note of this important reason why God is happy. God is fellowship. God is a unity of fellowship. There is perfect unity in the fellowship of the three persons of the Godhead. And if you read 1 John chapter 1 and the opening paragraph, you will see that the wonder of our redemption is brought to us by the apostolic message. And the apostolic message is this, that we now, fallen sinners, can come into union with the Father to have fellowship with him and into union with the Son to have fellowship with him by the Holy Spirit who enables us to do this. So we are brought into the circle of that triune love. God is happy because of his triunity. Now let us go further and observe in the third place that God is happy because of his creation. Uh, We've already had some of this expressed in song this morning. Psalm 104 uh, is uh, explosive inasmuch as the psalmist is expressing the joy of God in the creation of the universe and in the amazing, intricate detail of this world and its uh, makeup, the way it has been formed by the wisdom of God. Psalm 104 is 
an exposition, if you like, of Psalm 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. And in the King James it says, and the earth shows his handiwork. Psalm 104 is celebrating the amazing creation of God. Now, does God enjoy that? Does God enter into the wonder of that, uh, of the world and the universe that he has made? Does he survey it with pleasure? Does he have pleasure in that? You know, we have great pleasure in the things we make. Little children make things and then they like that, they enjoy that. They soon forget about it, of course, and want to make something else. But we have pleasure in the things we make. Now, does God have joy in his creation? Well, look with me at Proverbs chapter 8, where you have our Lord Jesus Christ uh, wonderfully expressed. Uh, He here is depicted as the one by the Father's right hand, present with him, as the craftsman. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 30. Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day. You have the, seven, the six days of creation, the seventh day of rest, and on each day there was this observation that the Lord looked upon what he was made and it was very good. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing, observe that, rejoicing always in his presence. This is before our Lord Jesus Christ took the incarnation, taking manhood to himself. Here he is rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. There is this great exhilaration, joy in the creation because the creation is an expression of the wisdom and power of God. God expresses in the vastness and beauty and harmony and glory of this amazing universe. He expresses his wisdom and his power and his knowledge. And in the beauty of that, There is exhilaration, there is joy, and all the sons of God shouted with joy and praise at the creation. They, as it were, expressed like trumpet sounds the glory of what God had made. Now, you can't escape the message that God is happy in his creation. He isn't passive in it, he's active in it. And it isn't just for the sake of doing something that he did it. There is joy in it. There is power in it. There is this exhilaration in it, in the scintillating nature of it. God expresses through his Son, rejoicing day after day. There is joy and gladness in his creation. But what was the creation for? Well, out of the creation comes the redemption of his people. And God rejoices in the salvation uh, of his sons and daughters. I think uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, expresses this uh, in the clearest way. Revelation, chapter 21, and verse 3, where we find that uh, God, in the new covenant, says... He dwells with men and he will live with them and they will be his people 
Verse 3 of Revelation 21. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. In other words, there is this union, this attachment, this oneness. Our triune God, according to the baptismal formula, makes himself one with his redeemed people and he is happy in that unity with them. Not to have them afar off, but to have them in the closest proximity to himself. To be his children, to enjoy him. Does he enjoy them? Does he have delight in them? Is he happy with them? Well, let us turn to the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 3. And we have the answer to that question. He is pleased to draw them to himself, to have close spiritual unity with them, our union with Christ, our union with the Father by adoption, our union with Christ, which is a spiritual union, our union with the Holy Spirit, who comes to live in us, not only for time and eternity, there is this closest unity. Is God happy with that? He certainly is. The prophet Zephaniah, chapter 3 and verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Not enough to rejoice only, but with singing he will rejoice over his people. How will God express the singing? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ will lead in the singing, as we see in Hebrews chapter 2. He's in the midst of his people. And the angels will fully express the joy of our triune God, rejoicing over these, his redeemed people. Is God happy? Well, I suggest to you that he certainly is a happy God. Is this important? Well, it certainly is important. I think it's been very well expressed uh, when one of the writers said, all our religion, Bob Letham, and he writes in Reformation today, all our religion is derived from the Trinity. We reflect our experience of the Trinity. All our religion is derived from the Trinity. If we are wrong here, we are wrong everywhere. If we are right here, then we will be balanced. We will have harmony. We will truly reflect the uh, wonder of God's salvation. We will reflect these uh, communicable attributes which belong to God. We will show his love. We will express his joy. We will express his blessedness and happiness. It's ridiculous to say that a Christian is miserable. Of course Christians have trials and there are times when they are excessively uh, uh, pressed and in tribulation and difficulty. We sympathize with that. We know what that is. We go through such times. But in general, a Christian is a blessed person, a happy person. How can he be otherwise if he is joined to the ever-blessed the ever-happy God, how can he be otherwise than be joyful and happy and glad 
because he is one with this transcendent, altogether holy God. He is, our God is happy because of his being, the holy God. Because of his triunity, he is three in one. Because of his creation, which is amazing and stupendous. And because of his people. Is there anyone here this morning who is not a Christian? Are you happy? Do you really derive happiness from this world without God? It's impossible. You'll never make it. I invite you, if you're not a Christian, and you hear this morning, young people, are you Christians? Do you know this God? You'll never remember these words. You'll never, never know true happiness without holiness. Only in our Creator God, the ever-blessed and happy God, can you know happiness. But it's not for your happiness that you come to be saved. It's for his glory that you come to be saved. He says, repent, believe, come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved for his glory, that's the big thing, but also for your happiness and joy you will be saved. May his name be praised forever. Our exquisitely, perfectly, happy, triune God. Amen. Our second consideration of uh, the important subject <coughs> of the blessedness or happiness of God. And in the previous time together, I suggested to you that God is perfectly blessed or happy in himself. First of all, because of his being. He is transcendent, he is unique, he has all the attributes of deity and he has them to himself. He is a part, he is holy. Then I suggested too that he is happy in himself because of his triunity. There are three persons, three equal persons in the Godhead and there is perfect love uh, in the Godhead of the three persons. I suggested also that God is happy because of his creation, which expresses uh, the joy of God. And then he is happy because of his redemption, because of his people that he brings into union with himself by grace. Now we wish to develop that uh, because there is uh, the traditional view that um, God is apathia, that is passionless, that he is a God without bodily parts or passions. Or as the uh, 1689 or the Westminster Confession uh, declare, there is the view that God is not subject uh, to feelings to the changeable feelings of men in the uh, transformation uh, from Old English into New English in the 
a Carey edition of the 1689 Confession, there is this um, statement, he is pure spirit, invisible and without body, parts or the changeable feelings of men. But are we to take seriously, are we to believe that God is without feelings? Now there is a long history uh, to that and uh, we have to go right back to the early church to observe the uh, various doctrines that were hammered out at that time. And Augustine was uh, a very powerful influence then and in subsequent centuries. And some of the early theologians like Augustine uh, were subject very much to Neoplatonism, the idea that um, substance is in in of itself is in and of itself evil uh, and impure and for purity you have to uh, think of an upper deck, uh, an upper story where there is purity and this kind of thing uh, was um, uh, propagated and has come right through the centuries uh, and it's very difficult to correct uh, the idea that for purity you have to uh, be above material matter uh, and everything to do with material matter is evil or, or can be evil so we have to exercise great caution now more and more in, the, in our generation there have been those who have challenged uh, the old views of what we call the impassibility of God, apathia, that is, God is a emotion, doesn't have emotion, he's impassible, He is not subject to passion. Now, uh, it is liberal theologians uh, largely that have uh, that have challenged this idea. Jürgen Moltmann, uh, J.K. Mosley are men who have uh, begun to challenge this. Karl Barth did, but Karl Barth is neo-orthodox and we exercise uh, care about that. Uh, Karl Barth uh, has been used to um, bring liberals to consider Calvin and he's Uh, brought them to that position and then some of them have gone on to read Banner of Truth books and to become reformed in the sense that we know it, embracing the doctrines of sovereign grace. But when we read uh, theologians like William Shedd, uh, we see that they cannot resist uh, the fact that God uh, has feeling. Um, Let me give you a quotation. On the subject of wrath and love, Uh, William Shedd comments these two emotions he says, these two emotions wrath and love are real and essential in God I repeat, these two emotions wrath and love are real and essential in God the one awakened by righteousness and the other by sin Uh, let me try and explain how vital this is. Uh, Together with many of you, I use a computer, a PC. And to be a modern man, I have often to update my 
equipment. I have to keep abreast with developments, which is very difficult and very expensive, uh, to keep abreast with computerware and software and so on. Now, my computer can do all kinds of things that I cannot do. It can do some things a thousand times more efficiently and more quickly than I can do. But one thing my computer cannot do, it cannot love me. I can put a message in so that when I start tomorrow morning, it will go up on the screen, I love you. But I know it doesn't because I said it had to love me, so it doesn't love me. Um, Sometimes I do not love it because it doesn't do all the things that I want to do, but it's never the computer's fault, it's always my fault, and that does tend to tempt me to be bad-tempered because it's always my fault, it's never the fault of the computer. Unless the lights go out and that's still not the computer's fault, that's somebody else's fault. But generally speaking, they do what they are programmed to do, but they never embrace you. My computer doesn't stretch out two arms and say, welcome, welcome brother, so happy to see you back this morning to work a hard day with me, welcome, I love you. Never does. My wife does, and I'm very happy about that, but the computer never does. She has no rival in the computer uh, because it just doesn't love. Now, are we uh, to love, serve and enjoy a computer? Do we serve, love and enjoy a computer god? Do we have as our concept of God a great, vast computer who knows all things, who does all things, a programmed computer? Is that our God? Or is our God a person? This is the subject. This is what we are handling. Because it is impossible, I would suggest to you, for us to love a computer. In some ways we can love a computer because it does do wonderful things. You can play golf. If you love golf, you can play golf on a computer. And you can do really well because you can program it so you do do well. And you'll do much better on the computer than you'll ever do out there for real. And you can say to the computer, I love you, computer, because you allow me to make pass scores in my golf because I program you to make pass scores in my golf. But uh, we know that that is farcical because at the end of the day we're dealing with technology. But when we come to the living God, is he technology or is he a person? Now I would say that he is a person. And he is a person with perfect feelings. He is a person who loves and hates. He is a person who has joy and blessedness. He is a person who knows what it is to be eternally happy. That is our God. And if I had to give you one proof of it, it is this, that Jesus Christ is the exegesis of the Father. Jesus Christ is the revelation of the Father. Jesus Christ is the exposition of the Father. Jesus Christ is the image of the Father. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. There you see the Father. Now when you see Jesus, do you see a computer or do you see a man? Do you see a person? Well, you see a person. And I observe in this session again we have some young people and this is very, very important for them to understand that our God is a God who has revealed himself 
in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to see God, you can see him in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There you have love. There you have holiness. There you have compassion. There you have indeed all the emotions that uh, we have in our creation. And there in the Lord Jesus Christ you see perfectly expressed the emotions of wrath against sin, of love for righteousness, all expressed in Christ, who enjoyed his people, who does enjoy his people, who is joy in the salvation of his people. And that are the Lord Jesus, it says, rejoiced and said to his father, O oh, Father, how wonderful it is that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. The emotional life of our Lord shows his personhood, that he is person. He is a person with feelings. But we have to be very careful about it. Why is it that the theologians have been so cautious about this matter. Some almost explode if you begin to go along the track of expounding on the subject of uh, the passions or the emotions of God. Well, there is very good reason why they have been cautious. And the principal reason why there is such care about this subject is because passion means change in our human understanding because we are subject all the time to change in our emotions and our feelings or our passions. We go up and down in our affections. We are prey to anxiety. We are prey to depression. It's a terrible thing when you have to, as a pastor, have to counsel people who are subject to manic depression, to a terrible depression or to people who lack assurance, who long for assurance and they don't have it. The Puritans, incidentally, were masters in the subject of counselling depressed people or people lacking assurance. They were wonderful physicians of the soul. And then we are subject to temptation. We are subject uh, to doubt. Uh, we are subject to inordinate care. Uh, we are subject sometimes when we are overstressed to bad temper. Uh, brother and sister uh, had a meal with us last night and I was most interested to hear of the great work they've done in making the recordings uh, for this conference. Uh, but they shared with me that it did bring uh, tension because when everybody wants their cassette before they go back from the conference, uh, it means you've got to sit up until three o'clock at night making these cassettes. Well, if you want to get under real pressure, you stay up every night until three o'clock and you will be in a state and you will soon understand your frailty, your weakness. Well, we are weak and we are subject to these things and we fear these stresses because we know how feeble we are uh, and we don't like to be like that. We hate to be like that. We want to be consistent. And because of that, it is intolerable to many that God should have passions. But we've got to accommodate it somehow or another. So how do we do it? Well, if I accomplish nothing else in this session, let me give you a formula 
for accommodating the fact that God is the ever-blessed God which includes feelings and emotions but without change, without those pressures, without uh, the frailty that we have. Uh, There is no possibility of God deviating. There is no possibility of God changing. There is no possibility of God changing his mind or his purpose because he feels differently about it. You know, people can make a promise to you. Take them to supper and you give them a good supper and they say, yes, I'm going to buy a thousand books from you uh, because you've given me a good supper, you've made me feel good, I'm going to buy a thousand books from your company and then a week later they write to you and say they've changed their mind. Well, why have they changed their mind? Well, because they're subject to passions and feelings. Now, God is not like that. So, we have to love a person. We have to serve a God who is a God of blessedness and happiness. We have to serve a God who we can communicate with. We can only understand a person. It's not possible for us to serve a computer. It's not possible for us to live for, to know and to love and enjoy a God who is passionless. It is inconceivable. It is absolutely impossible because we made in his image and we made to love as he is loved. So let's be realistic about it. God is a God of feeling and emotion. But now, first, the major um, precaution. I'll now answer this question, how do we understand God in this way and yet uh, have the guarantee that God does not change? that God is not subject to uh, the anxieties and the doubts and all the depressions and difficulties that we have. Well, the answer to this is his attribute of immutability. Now, that's a big word. Again, boys and girls here, immutability, if you learn this word, means um, unchangeable. To be immutable is to be unchangeable. God is not subject to to change. I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. What is immutability? Well, here's a text to tell you what it is. Malachi 3, 6. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. I have designed, I have purposed to save you, and because I do not change, I will save you, even though I am provoked, even though you are unreliable, even though you are sinful, I do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. God is immutable. And that is expressed in very, very well in the confessions of faith. And his immutability, that is his unchangeability, is the safeguard when we come to the subject of God's feelings or God's emotions. That is the safeguard, providing we accommodate all our thinking to the fact of God's immutability, providing we do that, we will be on safe territory. We will be okay. So let's consider just for a few moments the ways in which God does not change. God does not change with regard to his life. He has life 
in himself. We read in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16, who only has immortality. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ could say, I am the resurrection and the life. And because he is the resurrection and the life, he could also say, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and will come forth out of their graves. Those who have done righteousness to life eternal and those who have done wickedness to the great judgment day. But they will come forth at the voice of the Son of God they who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come forth. Why is that? Well, because Christ is God. Christ is co-equal with God. Christ has all the attributes equally with his Father. He, was, he is equal with his Father in every respect. He is inferior. And this is very important when Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door to remember. He is inferior to the Father respecting his manhood. He is equal to the Father with respect to divinity. With respect to deity, Jesus Christ is equal in every way with his Father. He has life in himself. And this very universe was created by the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father said to him, Now proceed. And he made the universe. He spoke these worlds into being because he has life in himself and that life can never change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. So there's no possibility of changing the life of God. God cannot die. And it's most interesting to observe in the New Testament that the major books of the New Testament begin with declarations about the deity and humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you think of the Gospel of John, the prologue, the introduction to John, there is this tremendous declaration of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And this one who is the word, the revelation, the exegesis of the Father, he becomes flesh and he lives among us. But the deity of Christ is stated there. And then in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, just a single sentence. He was, uh, concerning the flesh, he was born of the seed of David. Uh, concerning his deity, he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He is God. And everything that God is, he is man, and everything that man is. When we come to the book of Hebrews, opening paragraph is the declaration of Jesus, Son of God, from the Father, the express image of the Father, but he is man. This is the man who lives among us. And then uh, when we proceed to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, again, the absolute deity uh, in in an uncompromising way, Paul declares the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1. And then when we come to the book of Revelation, again, right at the beginning, who controls history? Jesus Christ is able to open the seals. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the first and the last. He is very God. And so, in the preface to the Apocalypse, 
to the revelation we see Christ altogether human and completely divine. And he is the same yesterday, today and forever. With regard to his deity, he can never change. He is the eternal God. Now, not only does God not change with regard to life, he does not change with regard to his character. His attributes do not change. No attribute changes. Every attribute of God is the same. And it's interesting to observe the way in which the Bible begins. For me, the Bible begins uh, in the revelation of Jesus Christ to Moses. That's where it all begins, as far as I'm concerned. That's how I see the beginning of the Bible. When the Lord Jesus Christ in the burning bush by theophany speaks to Moses. And then when Moses says uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, Who do I say has sent me? How can I go and call these people out of Egypt into the land of Canaan? How can I do that unless I have authority? They're not going to listen to me. I'm just a shepherd, an old man. I've retired. I'm on pension. I can't go back there. It's ridiculous. Who do I say? And he says, you tell them I am has sent you. Yahweh, I am the unchangeable the eternal, the all-sufficient, the all-powerful, the only God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, Yahweh, the I Am. You go and tell them the unchanging God has sent you to be their saviour and they will listen to you. Well, what is that saying? Saying that Yahweh doesn't change. He is I Am, always. I am. Unchanging, I am. The character is always the same. He does not change. He's not a different God tomorrow. He is the same God tomorrow as he was yesterday. He doesn't change and he cannot change. He changes not in character. And his truth does not change. There are a number of scriptures which eloquently express the fact that when God has spoken his truth, that truth cannot change. Yes, uh, humanity is subject to change. There's a very telling uh, portion in Isaiah where we are told that all flesh is as grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, the word of our God stands forever. The word of truth does not and cannot change. It is unchanging truth. His truth does not change. And as his truth does not change, so his purpose does not change. He has elected a people. He has purposed to save a people and he will save them. And when he has called you and united you to his son, you cannot be lost. The work he begins, he continues and he completes because He is unchanging in his purpose to save. God is immutable in his being, in his character, in his truth, and in his purpose to change. Now, we fully ascribe to that. We understand that. We receive that. We abide by that. That is our confession. Now, 
when we have done that, we return to the subject of feelings. If God is an unchanging God, does that mean that he has no feelings? Well, how is it conceivable that the scripture says, God is love? And then we, are we going to put in brackets, but of course, he has no feelings. And even more, when the scriptures declare very clearly the wrath of God against all unrepentant sinners, the wrath of God, are we going to then say, well, of course he has no feelings. Well, if he has no feelings, there will be no hell. Because the wrath of God expressed in hell is his displeasure. And displeasure is equal to feelings. There is displeasure in God against wickedness. And the wrath of God is expressed against all godlessness and unrighteousness of men. It is an expression. And it is an expression which we well understand and may I say only understand by the emotional content or the feeling that is involved. We cannot understand love and we cannot understand wrath apart from feelings. It's there. You cannot exercise discipline with your children unless you express your indignation or your wrath. You try and discipline your children without feelings. I don't believe it's conceivably possible. You don't have an automatum in the house that just automatically deals with them when they transgress. You express, somehow or other, you express your displeasure, that is, your feelings, your hurt feelings, about their transgression. Likewise, when you love your children, how do you express that? Do you express it without feelings or do you express it with feelings? And I would say that it is impossible to say to your children, I love you, but not have any feelings about it. What kind of love is that? So, coming back to Shed, he says, these two emotions are real and essential in God. That is, love and wrath. And our Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, shows this. Because he loved righteousness perfectly. And he hated iniquity perfectly. So we have the obverse side. What God loves is righteousness. What he hates is unrighteousness. So the one is the obverse side of the other. You cannot love truly without at the same time detesting that which is harmful to love, which destroys love. You must hate iniquity and at the same time love righteousness. Now, is it too much to expect that God eternally has this view, that God eternally has this feeling, that God eternally is the same, that he never, ever changes with regard to that which is wicked and with regard to that which is glorious and lovely and true. He loves passionately that which is holy and right and true and at the same time, with a passion, he hates that which is evil. Now, when we run through the scriptures, this is confirmed because as we read through scripture we see evidences of his wrath that he pours out his wrath upon an evil world the thoughts of men were only evil continually which brought the flood now God held back his wrath but eventually he destroyed the world with a deluge and that was an expression of his wrath 
and against Sodom and Gomorrah. He held back, but then he poured out in a fiery judgment his wrath upon these people who were perverted and who were corrupt, and he destroyed them. And we read in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, don't you know that uh, uh, by continuing in your sin, by being unrepentant, you are treasuring up to yourself a wrath against the day of wrath and the righteous judgment of God. But is it impossible for us to conceive of a consistency and it eternal consistency in the life of God with regard to hatred of sin and wrath against sin running concurrently with love for righteousness and this being shown in the emotional life of our Lord. Now, the life of our Lord was rich emotionally. Um, The only article that I've ever come across which even begins to deal adequately with the rich emotional life of our Lord as B.B. Warfield. He has an article, a few pages, about ten pages, on the subject of the way in which our Lord felt, the way the Lord Jesus felt, how he expressed his emotions as he came to the tomb of Lazarus, who'd been dead four days, and he was smitten with a grief and a sorrow and he cried, he wept uncontrollably at the grave of Lazarus. Why did he do that? Well, because he saw the horrors of death and what death is. It is the consequence of sin comes upon all mankind. He could see the ramifications of that with his divine mind as we cannot see it. And seeing the ramifications of sin and what sin has done to fallen mankind, it seized hold of his being and he wept uncontrollably. He did the same over the city of Jerusalem. And seeing the city, he looked at it and he saw the judgment coming upon it and he wept for the city of Jerusalem. Again, in a deep grief and sorrow, he wept. Now, there are those who say, well, of course, this is uh, just um, the humanity of our Lord. You see, it's, 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 the, it's the human Christ that is crying. It is the human Christ that is so moved. And then when we come to the Garden of Gethsemane, here again, he is so oppressed that he says, I'm going to die, and if I receive help, I'm going to die physically under the stress of what I'm coming to. So mightily as he moved in his being, in his feelings and emotions by the colossal weight of Calvary that is coming upon him and the separation from his father that is coming upon him, that he's about to dissolve, he's about to die. He's sweating great drops of blood because of this. Here is the emotional life. They say, well, this is just his humanity. But I don't believe you can just separate so neatly and tidily that you can just separate his humanity and put it on one side and say, of course, here it's only Christ, human, that's expressing this emotion and and the divine side is left over here. I don't believe it's possible. It's inconceivable. It's certainly very anti-confessional to do that because the confessions never allow us to just neatly and tidily make a division between the, the human Christ and the divine Christ. He is the one Christ. 
He is the one person. There are the two natures there in perfection, but there is a whole oneness, and that without confusion, there is oneness. So in Christ we see tremendous passion, tremendous struggle. But, of course, we must be very careful uh, when we uh, relate this to eternity. We can't, in fact, because it's beyond our ability, it's beyond our comprehension to relate it to eternity, but we understand it and we receive the message. We receive the message that God hates sin. He loves righteousness. And so, uh, let us observe then. Uh, Homoousios is a Greek word that uh, tells us, reminds us, that the Lord Jesus Christ is of the same essence as the Father. And he has expressed in his life a rich emotion, deep affections, great love. And God is uh, love and God is wrath. Is shed right in his statement, uh, these two emotions of wrath and love, are these the only emotions of God? I disagree with him. I don't think that that can be the case. These are perhaps the main, the principal emotions of God as expressed in Scripture. Another, incidentally, another objection, people say, well, these are anthropomorphisms. And that's a nice big word if you can get your tongue around that. That this, these are anthropomorphisms, these expressions in the Bible about God and his wrath and what he does in love and his infections and so on. They say, well, these are just put over so we humans can understand it. But I don't think that that's going to work because the language of the Bible is principally Hebrew. We have Greek, but Hebrew is the principal language. And when we look at some of the words that are used, for instance, uh, for wrath, the word af is mentioned 210 times and when you look at these expressions, the use of that word in context, there is tremendous passion and wrath there expressed. And another word is shima, 115 times. Again, in context, tremendous power is expressed in these uh, declarations of God in his mind about evil and his punishment of sin. Similarly, when we come to the word love, the Hebrew word for love is a passionate love. It's a very powerful expression. And some say, well, of course, in the New Testament, agape, well, when you use the word agape, you have to be uh, cautious about that. And, and it's a huge study. The, 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 the four Greek words for love and the chosen word by the Holy Spirit is agape. That is the principal word that is used. But that love that is expressed is the love of God, agape. But when love is expressed in the Old Testament and with the Hebrew equivalent, it is a very passionate word. It's a very strong word. People say, well, erao, the Greek word for human passion, sex and so on. Well, of course, that's never used. That's put on one side. And agape is taken as a pure love. But because it's a pure love, doesn't mean to say it's a love without affection. It's a, it's a love without depth, a love without passion. Of course, it is a love with passion. Our Lord Jesus Christ loved us uh, and his love for us, Ephesians 3.19, his love for us surpasses knowledge. Many waters cannot quench his love for us. It burns like a mighty flame. His love is stronger than death. 
Gethsemane couldn't put it out. The cross couldn't put it out. Rivers cannot wash it away. He loves us with a love surpassing knowledge. And nobody can persuade me that that is not a passionate love. He loves us passionately. And his father loves us passionately. And we read in James that the Holy Spirit watches over us with a jealous watchfulness because he loves the the redeemed people of our Lord. He lives in us, watches over us, keeps us, preserves us because he loves us with a passion. God is passionate love and loves us with a passion of love. Now, conclusion. Does our God have feelings? Does our God have emotions? Well, if we take the confession literally, he doesn't. He's just a computer. We understand what the confession is saying. We respect that. We say we must abide by Without any deviation of any kind, God is unchangeable. God is immutably the same. Absolutely so. We ascribe to that in every detail. That is article number one with regard to the subject. The immutability of God. Article number two concerning this subject. Within that unchangeability and that immutability, we say that God loves and hates perfectly. And these emotions are feelings, but how God does that is beyond us. We know he does. We are certain he does because we experience it. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. We know that. We couldn't receive that unless it came from a a person. He certainly does feel. He feels completely He feels uncompromisingly. He feels not only completely, but he feels perfectly. And he feels within the parameters of eternity. God does love. God does have hatred of sin. God is a God of hell. Hell is a permanent, eternal monument to the justice of God. Heaven. The new world, the new Jerusalem is a permanent monument of the love of God and his love of righteousness and holiness. Both heaven and hell are monuments to God's holiness. That he hates righteousness, he hates unrighteousness, he loves righteousness. We find in these eternal expressions, we find the feeling of God. But we cannot, as humans, fully fathom. We bow, we worship. We know that God is a God of holiness. He is the ever-blessed God. He is the God of joy. Not only is he love, not only is he wrath, God is a God of joy, of eternal blessedness and joy. This is your God. And when you come into the new world, you will know that I am right when I say that God is love with a passion. And when you come to the great judgment, you will know that God is wrath with a passion. And when you come into the new world and into the new Jerusalem to inherit the new earth that he will make, 
When you come to inherit this new world, you will certainly know that God is a God of joy and ecstasy. A God expressed by the choirs of angels, by the sublime singing of heavenly beings and by the choirs of the redeemed. We will sing, we will praise. Why will we sing? Why will we praise? Because God is person. Because God is holy. Because God is happiness. Because God is ecstatic blessedness. Because God is exquisite joy. Because he is all this as person. We will know that he has feeling, all within the bounds of immutability, unchangeability. Don't have any fears about it. God is not going to change with respect to anything. He is utterly immutable, infinitely immutable. You can rest in that, but at the same time, enjoy your God, behold your God and enjoy him, you who are made in his image. And as I said last time, if you don't know him, the most important thing for you, doesn't matter whether you are 10 years old or 12 or 14, the most important thing for you is to know him, to trust him, to have the forgiveness of your sins by him, to come to Christ, which is his provision, and by coming to Christ, give glory to our Father in the forgiveness of your sins, in reconciliation, and then to enjoy him by knowing him forever and ever. He always does Jesus stretch out his arms of invitation to everyone to come to him because he will give you rest. He will give you eternal